record of Christ. Only two books in the New Testament deal with the birth of Christ. One is Luke and the other is Matthew. So during the Christmas season, those are the books that we focus on. But it's 28 chapters, and I'm not sure if I asked you to outline the book of Matthew, you could do it. So even though you're familiar with the book, it's probably a book that's not read as much as, let's say, Mark or the Gospel of John or even Luke. And yet it's first among the four Gospels. It's listed first, not because it was written first. It was probably written last. But I think it's because of its size. It's the largest of the Gospels, and therefore those who compiled and arranged the New Testament books decided to go first with the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in this Gospel, there are a lot of verses that you will recognize. From, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. All these verses you're familiar with. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. We know these verses, we memorize these verses, but we don't understand the verses because we memorize them and we take them outside of their context in which they're written. So oftentimes when we quote them in a situation, we're quoting them correctly in the sense that we are, you know, we are repeating the verse correctly, but we're not giving the real meaning and application of the verse the way it should be. So take your Bibles and let's open up to the Gospel of Matthew. Today I'm going to deal with introductory matters. And we could call the Gospel of Matthew the Gospel of the Kingdom. That phrase, Kingdom of Heaven or Kingdom of God, is mentioned 32 times in this Gospel. And that's what this Gospel is about. It's about God's Kingdom. Now usually Matthew uses the term Kingdom of Heaven. Others use the term Kingdom of God for the same uh, events and the same circumstances. When Matthew uses the word kingdom of heaven, he doesn't mean heaven is the kingdom. He means the kingdom originates in heaven. It's not an earthly kingdom. It comes from above. Uh, but this kingdom is on earth. okay? And it will eventually come to earth in its fullness. The phrase king of the Jews is mentioned seven times in this gospel. And that's one of the other themes of this gospel, is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And we're going to see why that is important. So as we're going to do the introductory things today, we're going to talk about the author of this gospel, the audience to whom it's written, the structure, how it's laid out, and then we'll look at a few of the features about the gospel. So let's look at the author of the gospel. Notice the book doesn't start off with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or anything like that. It doesn't say Matthew, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, we would say that the gospel is written by an anonymous author. The Gospel of Matthew is written by an anonymous author in that the author does not identify himself in that text. In other words, you can read through the entire book and you will not know who wrote it. Traditionally, the church has attributed this book to Matthew, the tax collector, who's also known as Levi. But there's no internal evidence of that. The first reference we have that this 
could have been written by Matthew comes very later, very much later in church history. But I want you to notice the title over the book in your Bible. Notice it says, The Gospel According to Matthew. <clears throat> this Greek title, According to Matthew, uh, was added as early as the 2nd century. Which means that there were people in the 2nd century who called this book the Gospel of Matthew. Now whether this Matthew is the Apostle, one of the twelve, or somebody else named Matthew, we don't know. But for our sakes, we're just going to call it, and when I talk about the author, I'm going to say Matthew says, okay? <clears throat> now, so we're not certain who writes it. So, and the title's not inspired. You understand that? Okay, now who is it written to? Well, it used to be thought that the Gospel of Matthew was written to people who were living in Judea. But the consensus among the greatest scholars, New Testament scholars, who lived in our day and age, believed that this was written to a group of house churches, a group of Christians who have migrated out of Judea and have gone north into Antioch, Syria. This is the same Syria where the riots are taking place today. Okay? There are still a lot of Christians in Syria today. Even though it's mainly Muslim, there's still Christians in there. And these Christians have their origins all the way back to Matthew's audience. Now, it was written probably somewhere between 85 and 90 AD. Now, what I'm giving you is the absolute latest scholarship that's available on the Gospel of Matthew. If you read a commentary from 30 years ago, you're going to get some different dates, some of that kind of stuff. But this is the problem with a lot of uh, preachers, is they use old commentaries, and they don't stay up with the scholarship. But we believe that this book was probably written somewhere around 85 to 90 A.D. And uh, that means that when Matthew writes his gospel, the temple has been destroyed, which was destroyed in 70 A.D. And... The city of Jerusalem has been gutted and burned to the ground by the Roman army. Remember the Jews led a rebellion against Rome in 66 AD. It's called the Jewish War. It lasted three and a half years. Rome came in and just basically just wiped that city off the map. And the Jews, including Jewish believers, had to scatter, and many of them scattered up into Antioch. So what we would say is this is a pastoral letter. This is a letter written to people who are in churches up in Antioch, Syria, and uh, <clears throat> written by this person we're going to call Matthew, which is to guide them in how to live uh, now that they are in the north. Now let me give you the structure of this book. Now, this is very interesting. When we look at the structure of Matthew, I'm going to divide it into three sections. And here's how I'm going to divide it. Chapters 1 through 4.16. Chapters 1 through 4.16, we're going to call that the introduction. The introduction. Chapter 1 through chapter 4.16, the introduction. Now I want you to turn over to 4.16. I'll show you how we know that this ends the first section. Okay. Notice <coughs> verse 17. Verse 17. 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Notice that phrase, from that time. That is a transitional verse that finishes off the first section, the introduction. 
And then, beginning in 4.18, what you have is the body of the book, the main body of the book. So that's the second section. Beginning in that next verse, the main body, and it goes from 4, let's say, 17b or 418 all the way to 1621. So turn over to 16 or 1620. So turn over to 1620. Section 2, the body of the book. 1620. In this section, you have selected events of Jesus' life and ministry, mainly in Galilee. In Galilee. This is his Galilean ministry. And it's in this section that you have Peter's confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the pivot point of the book. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And they had all kinds of opinions. And Jesus says, well, who do you say? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. Remember those words. You are the Christ. Remember that word, Christ. You are the Son. Remember that. And that sort of turns the book around and this pivots on that major point. Okay. Now, I told you look at 1620. Now look at 1621. See if you haven't seen that phrase before. From that time, you see that? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed and be raised the third day. So there's your transitional verse from that time. That turns it to the third section, which is your concluding section, which starts at the very next verse and goes to the end of Matthew. And these are the events that take place as Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he ministers in Jerusalem and he dies and he raises his raised in Jerusalem. So you have the introduction, which are verses chapters 1 through 416, which are events that take place prior to Jesus' public ministry. That section one, introduction, are events that take place prior to Jesus' public ministry. Talks about him being baptized, and then finally he goes out and he gets launches into the ministry. So that first section, events prior to his ministry. The second section, the major body, are events that take place in Galilee during his ministry. His words and deeds in Galilee. And then the third section are events that take place as he moves toward and goes into Jerusalem. This book climaxes with the Great Commission, which is, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, remember I said the pivot verse. Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the pivot verse. The climax of the book. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, so we have three sections of the book. You still, you still with me on that? Within these sections, we have five major discourses. Five major teachings that Jesus gives, and I want to mention those to you. Okay? The first major discourse takes place in chapters 5 and 6. So just sort of turn there, and I'll tell you what's in those chapters. Chapters 5 and 6 make up what we call the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first discourse, where Jesus talks about the ethics of the kingdom. How are we to live now 
until God comes and sets up his kingdom in its fullness on the earth. That's chapters 5 through 7. That section, that discourse ends at 728. Look at 728. And here's what it says. So it was when Jesus had ended or finished these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. So notice you have his first major teaching or discourse, chapters 5 through 7. It concludes with verse 28. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. Discourse number 1. Discourse number 2 is chapter 10. Chapter 10. And this is where Jesus talks about the mission of the kingdom. He sends out the twelve, he tells them what to preach, and he explains the mission that they had. That's chapter 10. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Look how that discourse ends. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples. Look at that. Same thing that we just saw before. Came to pass when Jesus had finished commanding his twelve disciples. Okay, The third discourse, the third major teaching, is found in chapter 13. So turn over to 13. And you know what that is? That's the parables of the kingdom. It takes up a whole chapter. And notice how that ends in 1353. <clears throat> See if this doesn't sound somewhat familiar. 1353. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables. You see how that? Every time the teaching, a major teaching ends, it has a statement like this. 53. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. Okay? The fourth major discourse. The fourth major discourse is chapter 18. Chapter 18. And this deals with forgiveness and the kingdom. The whole thing is about how in the kingdom you forgive people. You don't hold people responsible to make mistakes. And notice how that ends in 19.1 it says. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these things that he departed from Galilee. You see that? That statement has been repeated every time, hasn't it? It tells you that the teaching, the major discourse has ended. And he's moving on to the next phase of his ministry. Now, the fifth major discourse is found in chapters 23 and 24. 23 and 24. And this deals with eschatology in the kingdom. This is, uh, deals with uh, how things are going to work out in the end. And what we see in chapters 23 and 24, we see, number one, that... The Jewish leaders are, who have rejected Jesus are sort of cast away. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a, chin gather, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You wouldn't allow me to do it. You've rejected me. And basically he rejects them. And also included in here is the Olivet Discourse where he says, And guess what? One day this temple you're looking at won't be standing anymore and this city's going to be destroyed. So Israel basically, the leadership of Israel representing the nation, are rejected by Jesus. Now look at chapter 26, how this thing ends, in verse 1. 
Now it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, you see that? Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he said to his disciples. So notice again you have that same phrase, that same sentence. Now it came to pass when he had finished these sayings. That ends the fifth major discourse. Now, it's interesting, a couple things are interesting. In the fourth discourse on forgiveness, The word church is mentioned twice. Okay? The Gospel of Matthew is the only one of the four Gospels that ever mentions the word church. And there's a reason for this. is that Matthew is writing to a group of house churches and he's telling these churches how to live in light of Jesus' teaching. Okay? In the fifth discourse where he rejects Israel and turns to those who will accept him among Jews and Gentiles, <clears throat> uh, which seems so severe because basically he says, you've, just, you've crossed the line of no return, and I, I reject you, and guess what? I'm letting go of you, and your temple's going to be destroyed, and your city's going to be destroyed, and your whole religious system of how you have salvation, sacrifices, and all that, going to be destroyed. If you don't come to me, there'll be nowhere else to turn. Uh, it's not the only time that he says that. He says that throughout the gospel many times. And I want to show you one example. I want you to look at chapter 21. And look what he says here. It's very interesting. He says this to the Jewish leaders. When you get to 21, look at uh, like verse 42. And look what it says. He talks about the stone which the builders rejected. You familiar with that? God's made him the chief cornerstone. And look at verse 43. Therefore I say to you, and he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, I say to you, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Notice the transfer. Out of the hands of the Jewish leaders who said they were God's representatives of his kingdom on earth, it's going to be taken away from them and given to another nation. What nation is going to get that kingdom? Not America. Not England. It's the church. The church is a nation. We think of the church as a building. We think of the church as a group of people. God calls the church a holy nation. And he's taking it from the nation of Israel and he's giving it to the nation of the church. And verse 45 says, When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. So the kingdom is taken out, taken out of the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's placed into the hands of the apostles who will go out and spread the gospel and plant churches. It's a very interesting concept, and you'll see this throughout all of Matthew's Gospel. It all makes sense, and it'll come together. Now, let me give you the circumstances upon which this Gospel was written. Okay? Remember I said that the Jews rebelled against God. <clears throat> against, uh, they rebelled against God, but they also rebelled against Rome. Rome comes in and destroys their temple in 70 AD and burns their city. Uh, if you would ask a Jew why the temple was destroyed and why the city was burned, they would say, well, Rome did that. 
But if you ask Matthew why it happened, or you ask Jesus why it happened, he would say God did that. Now, let me just show this to you. Look at chapter 22, for example. He talks about the parable of the wedding feast, about a man who has a wedding, calls people to come to the wedding. You're familiar with that. Man represents God. The son represents Jesus. And then look what happens. You know that uh, it says they killed his son and so on and so forth. Now look at verse 7. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies. He destroyed those murderers. And he burned their city. You see that? This is in a parable form. This is Jesus saying that the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And it's God's doing it because you rejected his son and you put him to death. So... What you have is that God, in a sense, wipes his hands of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people as a mass of people. And he now turns to those who will be open to his son and accept his son, whether they're Jewish or Gentiles. And they will form a new nation called the church, upon which he's going to build his kingdom. Now, after the temple is destroyed and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, This is a very interesting part of history. The Pharisees emerged as the leaders of the Jews. Now, prior to this, the Pharisees were not the leaders of the Jews. Pharisees were a leading group, but they weren't the leaders. The real leaders were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were connected to the temple. The temple was where God resided, according to the Jewish mind. But guess what? When the temple got destroyed, the Sadducees were without a job. And you know when there's a vacuum, someone steps right in, and the Pharisees stepped right in. And they began to determine, what does it mean to be a Jew? Living outside of Jerusalem, and without a temple. Well, we knew what it meant to be a Jew when you lived in Jerusalem and there was a temple. It meant that you went to the temple, you made sacrifices, daily sacrifices, annual sacrifices. But what does it mean to be a Jew without a holy city and without a holy temple? Well, the Pharisees defined what that meant. And they said, well, what it means now is, to be a Jew means now, means that you keep the Torah, you keep the law of Moses. We don't have a temple, you keep the law of Moses. Anybody keeps the law of Moses? That's a good Jew. And you reject Jesus as the Messiah. That's being a good Jew. And you have nothing to do with Gentiles. That's being a good Jew. And they basically defined what it meant to be a good Jew. Well, of course, we got a problem, don't we? The problem is, what if you are a Jew and you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, as your Messiah? You believe in Him. See? And uh, what are you going to do with your with your relatives and with your next door neighbors and the people you work with who are taking the Pharisees' definition of Judaism and they're saying, you keep the Torah, you keep the law of Moses, and these Jews are following the teaching of Jesus instead of the Torah. They're following Jesus, not Moses. And they think that's okay because Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. They were saying that's what that's okay. That's what we should be doing. But not their neighbors. Their neighbors said, no, no, no. The Pharisees say you have to keep Torah. And what do you do with these Jewish believers who are fellowshipping with Gentiles in these house churches? 
And their family says, Hey, you shouldn't be doing anything with Gentiles. Pharisees said, To be a Jew is not to have anything to do with Gentiles. And you're having a lot to do with Gentiles. <clears throat> and what happens as a result, these people have been, these Jewish believers have been being put out of the synagogues. And they've been rejected by the Jewish community by this time, 85 and 90. A.D. said so what happens is that Matthew writes this pastoral letter uh, telling these people, hey, don't worry about it. God's with us. God's with us. Not with them, he's with us. Don't worry if your friends abandon you, God's not going to abandon you. They named him Emmanuel, which means what? See, so when we think of Emmanuel, we only think of the birth narrative, but guess what? For these people reading it in 85 A.D., hey, 60 years after the events took place, 90 years after his birth took place, just remember that. you got two dates going on here. you got the events that are taking place in Jesus' life that are taking place between 0 and 30, let's say, and you have people who are reading this gospel who are living in 85 or 90. That's a gap of 60-some years. These are people who have never met Jesus in their life. These people that are reading this. Matthew's writing about Jesus and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me retell you his story and see if some of this doesn't apply to you. We'll call his name Emmanuel, which means what? Oh, boy, that helps me now in 85 when I'm being persecuted, doesn't it? I know God's with me. They're saying God's with them. Where two or three are gathered, there I am what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations for Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I am what? You see how that phrase, I'm with you, I'm in your midst, Emmanuel, see how that makes a lot of sense to somebody living under persecution in 85 or 98 AD? See, so when you read it, don't just read it in the fact that it took place in Jesus' lifetime. You have to read it as if you were the original readers of the Gospel of Matthew and say, how would this apply to me? Put yourself in those, their shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of Christians all around the world right now who are being persecuted. What would that statement, call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, would that minister to you, knowing that God's with you in the midst of this mess that you're going through? Of course it would. So Matthew is writing this, what I would call, a pastoral letter. And he's answering their question, should we, should, we re, should we reject Christ and go back with original Judaism so we don't face persecution? He says, no, no, God's with you. You know, here's some guidelines to live by. You know, let me tell you, retell you the story of Jesus. So that's what he's doing here. Now, with that said, let me take you to Matthew 1, 1, and we're going to cover one verse today. Okay, that's sort of introductory matters, okay? So here's our first verse. Today we'll cover verse 1 of Matthew. Next week we'll cover the next 17 verses. Following week we'll cover the next verses. Because we'll be into the Christmas season. Okay, so here we are. Watch this. Here's how the book opens. Starts this way. The genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew is going to trace Jesus' lineage. 
his genealogy back to certain individuals. Okay? But before he does so, he identifies Jesus in a certain way. Look what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. Now look at this next word. Christ. Not his name. That's his title. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. He says, let me give you the genealogy of Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus the Messiah. Okay? Now the Jews believe that when Messiah came, he was going to liberate them from Rome. Jesus did not liberate anybody from Rome. He didn't overthrow the Roman government. The Roman government defeated the Jews in Jerusalem and destroyed their temple. That's why the Pharisees reject Jesus. They think he's a false Messiah. Matthew is going to stress he's the real Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the real Messiah. How do you know he is the real Messiah? Because of his genealogy. Trace his lineage back. And here's what it says. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the seed of David. Uh, nine times that phrase is applied to Jesus. He's the son of David. As the son of David, he fulfills what we call the Davidic covenant. This is very important. If I had extra time, I'd turn you there. But just look sometime at 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God gives David a covenant. And he says, through from your loins, I'm going to set up a king, and his kingdom will be forever. So Jesus here is called the son of David. Not a son, no, this is the son of David. He's the one through whom God is going to set up the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. And then he says this. He's not only the son of David, he is the son of Abraham. He ties Jesus' lineage all the way back to the beginning founder of the Jewish nation. Abraham, the man of faith. Now, he, you can't go back any further than Abraham as far as Jewish lineage is concerned. Now, this is very important. He goes all the way back to the beginning. Now, my, my aunt... I had an aunt called Aunt Ethel, my favorite aunt, because every time I went to her place, she always gave me a buck. So I liked Aunt Ethel. <laughs> I got buck, a dollar, and a Coke. And then for a kid 12 years old, you go visit your aunt a couple times a week that way. <clears throat> now, our family was just normal family. But guess what? Aunt Ethel traced her lineage all the way back to Colonel John Smith, who fought in the American Revolution. And there is a city in the state of Maryland called Street, Maryland. It's true. It was named after John, John Street, Colonel John Street. And because she could trace her lineage back to Colonel John Street, who fought in the Revolution, she was eligible to become a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Now, that really meant something to her. That meant that she was of that lineage. At least, I think we were. That was her statement, that we were of that lineage. Now, <clears throat> So she was proud that she was the daughter of the American Revolution because she could trace her ancestry back to that point. Jesus' ancestry is traced back to Abraham, who's the founding father of Israel as a nation. Now, as a result of this phrase, son of David and son of Abraham, we see that Jesus has a royal descent. He descends he descends from King David. He has an ethnic descent. He descends from Abraham. As the son of David, he's heir to David's throne. He is heir to David's throne. 
as a son of Abraham, he's heir to the promise. Now there are two promises. A promise made through David and a promise made through Abraham. The promise made through David is that as son of David, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Through Abraham, he's the Lord of the nations, the Lord of the universe. Remember, God gave Abraham a covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He said, through you all the nations of the world shall what? Be blessed. So through Abraham, Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, and he's the Lord of the nations. King of the Jews through David, Lord of the nations through Abraham. Now, this is where the problem comes. This is where things rub the wrong way. There's already a king of the Jews. His name is Herod. And there's already a lord of the universe or a lord of the nations. His name is Caesar. So by identifying Jesus as king of Jews and lord of the nations, we have him competing with two others who hold those offices. Herod and Caesar. Herod tries to kill him when he's born. Remember the wise men came? Come, they said, Where is he who is born what? He said, You're looking at him. <laughs> nah, we're talking about the real one. <coughs> See, you know that you're in for some trouble right here. This, this is going, Matthew tells us we're in for some political confrontation. And in the end, Rome kills him, don't, don't they? They get rid of this other Lord of the universe. They already have a Lord, which is Caesar. Remember the Jews came to the Pilate and said, if you don't put him to death, you're no friend of Caesar. So, this means that the stage is set for a major confrontation. So what Matthew was saying is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of David, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and all the hopes and promises of Israel find their fulfillment in him. And this is what you're going to see throughout this book. If you look down at chapter 1 in verse 22, for example, notice what it says. All this was done. Notice what it says. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. Do you see that? That it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And it talks about the virgin birth. Look at chapter 2 in verse 5, for example. And so they said to him, When Herod asked about the Messiah, they said to him, In Bethlehem, for it is written by the prophet. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, of being the king of the Jews. If you look down in that chapter, verse 15, it says, And he was there in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be, look at this, fulfilled. Do you see that phrase, fulfilled? Look down at verse 17. Then it was fulfilled by the which was spoken by Jeremiah. Look down at verse 23. And it came to dwell, it came to dwell in the city called Nazareth, Nazareth, that it might be what? Fulfilled. Everything is fulfilled. Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. You see this again in chapter 8, for example. Look at chapter 8. And look at verse 17. 817. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken. You see that? That it might be fulfilled which is spoken. Look at chapter 13. 
Now, we don't want to go on forever, but I'll just show you this one other one. Chapter 13. And look at verse 35. that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet that it might be fulfilled Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant he's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy and his baptism John said I should baptize you Jesus said no you should baptize me that all righteousness might be fulfilled he said I've not come to destroy the law but that the law might be what? Fulfilled. Everything's about fulfillment. So what you have here is you have the Pharisees saying, what does it mean to be a Jew? It means to reject Jesus and keep the law of Moses. And not have anything to do with Gentiles and Matthew saying, oh no, no, they got it wrong. God is working through Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the law of Moses. And he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, Matthew said, you can believe in Jesus and still be a good Jew. You don't have to reject Jesus to be a good Jew. According to the prophets, Jesus fulfills the prophecies. It's God, not the Pharisees, that set the agenda of what it means to be a Jew. And that's what Matthew's saying. And he says, through Christ, God has established this new covenant. He's fulfilled the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And guess what? It includes Gentiles. They get to get in on it. Now the covenant that God establishes is a covenant with Israel. He rejects Israel, but guess what? He makes a new covenant with Israel. A covenant with the remnant of believers in Israel, plus the Gentile believers who are grafted in. So what he says is basically this. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Don't cave into pressures. Continue to have fellowship with Gentiles. Still call yourself Jewish. You are Jewish. You were born that way and you'll die that way. You're just a Jewish believer in Jesus. And show unity in those house churches and always remember that God is with you. He's not with those guys. He's with you. Not with them. With you. And so with that introduction, we're going to go into the Gospel of Matthew. And next week we're going to look at this genealogy, which is very interesting. And you're going to see how interesting this genealogy is. I'm convinced that it's probably the most important part of the book. Because it sets the stage for everything that Matthew wants to say. So that's where we'll pick up next week. Right. Father, we thank you for this gospel that we all know about in some way or form. Help us to understand what it meant to those people who were being persecuted, being put out of the synagogues, being rejected by their own family members, their own friends, their own employers, employees. And Lord, help us to apply these same lessons to our lives and realize that there are people around the world that are suffering in a similar fashion. Help us to have compassion on them. Help us to learn how to live by these ethics of the kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.